We're right in the middle of a series that's entitled The Glory of God in the Salvation of Sinners. We started this series all the way back in Exodus 33, where Moses asked God to show me your glory. That is, show me your splendor. Show me your magnificence. I want to see a glimpse of your greatness. As we see from that passage that God's attributes are part of his glory, but also in that chapter, how God's deliverance, God's rescue, God's salvation demonstrates his glory. So we've been focusing on this last number of weeks, God's glory as demonstrated in his rescue, his salvation of sinners. Those who are sinful, condemned to die, God's actions in redeeming them, in saving them, in delivering them. And so we looked at, first of all, God's power, God's power seen in creation. And we saw in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is God's power to salvation for all who believe. The same power at work in creation, same power that's work in new creation through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then we moved on and now we're in talking about the atonement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And last week we considered the question, what did Christ's death achieve? That is, what was, the, what was accomplished by the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ? And last week we spent our whole time in Revelation chapter 5, And what we saw was that Christ's atonement is glorious. We see all of creation worshiping Christ. Why? Because he was slain. He was slaughtered. And more than that, through his death, he accomplished redemption. By his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he made them a kingdom and priests, and they will reign on the earth. That was accomplished through Christ's death, through his blood. It was an accomplishment. And we talked about how that is a difference between how it's so often presented in our world today, in our Christian world today, how Christ's death is not an accomplishment, didn't in fact achieve redemption, but how Christ's death, through his death, provided a way of redemption. That through his death, that is Christ, how it's commonly stated today, Christ died for the sin of all people, such that salvation is possible for all people. That's how it's commonly taught today. Christ died for the sin of all people, such that salvation is now possible for all people. But as we looked at last week, that means that Christ's death was not an actual atonement. It was a potential one. That when Christ died, no one was actually saved, but everyone was potentially saved. There was a way that was made open. It also means that hell is full of people for whom Christ has died. Christ has died for every single person. It means that hell is full of people for whom Christ has died, for their sin. It also means that on the cross, Jesus did exactly the same thing for the people in hell as he did for the people in heaven. Exactly the same. The work of Jesus was exactly the same. The difference is in one case it was used, it was received. In the other case, it was not. It also means that if Jesus came to die to save sinners, guess what we know? You know he came to die. I came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. If he came to die to save sinners, then we'd have to say that for many people for whom Christ died, that his, his death was powerless. It failed to achieve what he set out to accomplish. We looked at these truths last week. We don't have a chance to fully elaborate on this week. But if we go back just a few hundred years, um, the truth that we looked at last week about an actual atonement that Jesus Christ accomplished, that all for whom Christ has died will be saved, uh, is not a new teaching. 
In fact, if we go back a few hundred years, it was, it was the Orthodox, the common teaching. If we went from church to church, this what would be taught. It was taught, like we have in John 10, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for his sheep. And what that means is that his sheep would fully and finally and without question be saved. Because Jesus Christ was the good shepherd and he laid down his life for them. In that chapter in John 10, we have the Pharisees coming up to Jesus and who are um, his adversaries. And Jesus told them, because they're hardened in their unbelief, Jesus told them plainly, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Right in the context of Jesus saying, I lay down my life for the sheep and my sheep know me and they hear my voice and they follow me and, and I will save them and no one will be able to snatch them from my hands. And why? Because Jesus is going to die for them. We see it in Ephesians 5 when it says that Christ laid down his life for the church. He laid down his life for the church. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It was taught in the past that Christ's death was glorious because it was effective. When he laid down his life for the church, he accomplished the redemption of the church. That the church would be presented before the Father holy and without blemish, without spot or wrinkle because of that atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. And last week he talked about, briefly, substitutionary atonement. And the idea of a substitutionary atonement is that Christ died in the place of sinners. Christ did not just die for sin in general, but he died for sinners in particular. So, Penal substitutionary atonement, which was what I would say almost all of our evangelical churches today would subscribe to, it depends on an actual definitive atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ when he died in the place of sinners. Not just dying for sin generally to make it possible, not just a potential or a hypothetical atonement, but an actual one where he actually died in the place of sinners. And so the weight of scripture is that Jesus died for people. And when he died for people, he accomplished their redemption, their rescue from sin. And so last week we saw that the glory of the atonement is not in its extent, not that it was offered for every single individual on the planet, but the glory of the atonement is in its effect. That is, those for whom Christ died will be saved, must be saved, because Christ's death is that precious, that glorious, that effective, that powerful. Okay, the glory of the atonement is not in its potential. Not in the fact that Christ has died and so therefore everyone can potentially be saved. The glory of the atonement is in the power of the atonement. Not a potential. That when Christ died, people will be saved. They were saved because of Christ's death in their place. He did not make people savable, but he actually completely, totally saved people. Now, if you missed last week, that short explanation is probably woefully deficient. Uh, to, to try to convey what we looked at last week. We spent an entire sermon on that, those topics last week. Okay, and many objections come to our mind because the first thing we hear truth like that, we're thinking, but that sounds like limited atonement. Because we say, well, that atonement is limited. That is, Jesus didn't die for everybody. And so that's limited atonement. And I, I know that limited atonement is bad. Okay, but everyone, like we said last week, everyone believes in limited atonement. Because the atonement is either going to be limited in terms of God will limit in terms of those whom he gave Christ for, or we're going to limit it. And what I mean by that is we're going to limit it because Christ has died for every single individual, 
But then who limits the atonement in that case? It's when people don't come to Christ, they don't receive Christ. And therefore, that atonement is not actual. It is just a potential. And so the atonement is better described not as a limited atonement, but as a definite atonement, an actual atonement, a powerful atonement. That Jesus Christ died and in his death he saved sinners. Now this week we're going to look at a number of different objections to that truth of an actual powerful atonement, a definite atonement. Before we get to some of those objections, I want to take you to a passage in Hebrews. So take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Turn to Hebrews chapter 8. I mentioned last week that the, the scriptures are silent on this idea that Jesus died to make salvation possible. Christ's atonement is always put in definitive terms. He redeemed, he ransomed, he rescued. Never he made it possible, but in fact, he actually did it. He accomplished it. And so if I can show you from scripture that Christ's death secured our redemption, not merely providing the possibility of it, then you'll see exactly what I'm trying to get at. We're forced to conclude that Christ's atonement was definite and actually saves those for whom it was offered. Okay. Now we're going to look at Hebrews chapter eight and Hebrews chapter eight talks about the new covenant. As we celebrate the Lord's supper each and every week, we're celebrating Christ's death and his inauguration of the new covenant. Remember from Matthew, when Jesus says this cup is the blood of the covenant poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. What did Jesus mean by that? What does Jesus mean that his death, his blood shed, inaugurated, sealed, guaranteed the benefits of the new covenant for forgiveness of sins? What does he mean by that? Well, we're going to look at Hebrews and see exactly what this new covenant work of Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross. So I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. Verses 6 to 13. It says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and here he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As we consider this text and the new covenant that Christ inaugurated through his death and resurrection, 
we recognize that there is glory and there is splendor in this new covenant. As it says, because it's enacted on better promises. You know, what was, what was wrong with the old covenant? There was always a remnant motif in the Old Testament. Not everyone in that old covenant, not everyone in the nation of Israel was true Israel. Not everyone believed and was a follower of God. Not everyone was saved in that sense, rescued with sins forgiven. And so we always had a few people who were faithful, who would call the others to, to know the Lord, to get right with God. Don't offer sacrifices just with the externals, but get your heart right before God. And so here we have a promise of a new covenant. And that new covenant is much better than the old covenant. Because that old covenant, the people broke. He says, um, they did not continue in verse nine in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. Because the nation of Israel, not only have a remnant motif, but we have people who are rebelling against God. And God promised them, if you do not follow the words of this covenant that he's made with the people through Moses, his servant, he will bring curses. If they are faithful to obey what the Lord has commanded, God will be faithful and he will give blessing. And so we have this promise of, of cursing and blessing. And ultimately, if you continue in your disobedience, then I'll remove you from the land. That's what God said to them. And he did. And they went into exile. And so as this passage says, they did not continue in my covenant. They were unfaithful. The people of Israel broke the covenant of the Lord. But this new covenant is different. This new covenant is different. God says this time, I'm going to do this. And what is he going to do? What are some of the benefits of this new covenant? God says, look at the middle of verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. That's a description of the new birth. God is going to give us a new heart. It's talked about in Ezekiel, this heart of stone that's ripped out and a heart of flesh that's put, put in such that we have desires for holiness, desires to keep the law of God, not from external constraint, but from a, a wellspring of love that the spirit has put in our heart to follow God. So God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my law into their minds. I'm going to write it in their hearts and I'm going to be their God and they shall be my people. And he says in verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. That is everyone within the new covenant is going to know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. Everyone will be saved. Everyone in the new covenant will experience this new birth and have the law of God written on their minds and on their hearts. Now, why is this so significant? Well, this covenant is a unilateral covenant. This is given by God and God's saying, I am going to do this. And he accomplished it through Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ said, this cup is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for forgiveness of sins, this is what he was talking about. I am going to achieve this covenant through my death and through my resurrection. Look with me at, in Hebrews chapter nine. Look at verse number 11 to 15. 11 to 15. Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, 
not make a potential, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What this passage is saying, we don't have time to go through all, there's a lot in there, but two of those verses in particular Verse number 12, Christ secured an eternal redemption through his blood. And then down in verse 15, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is, Christ's death was effective to achieve God's purposes of a new covenant. Through Christ's death, we have the promise delivered of a new birth. Through Christ's death, we have the promise delivered of God saying, I will forgive their iniquities. I will be merciful to them. I will forgive their sins. And that is accomplished through Christ's death. He secured it. He accomplished it through his death. It wasn't a potential. He died for his new covenant community, for the church, for his sheep to secure their salvation. We sing these songs in our hymn book. There's power in the blood. And we sing it. We should mean it. Another hymn we're going to sing later today. All sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Because Christ's atonement accomplishes salvation. Nothing to be added. Nothing to be added. God said, I will do it. And Christ as high priest accomplished it through his death and through his blood. Through the blood of Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost. Okay. So there's much in, in Ephesians, much in Hebrews, sorry, that talks about the effective atonement of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One more passage I want to look at in Hebrews 9. Look at 27 and 28. Hebrews 9, 27, 28. It says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ accomplished salvation. One of the objections to a limited atonement or to a definite atonement, an actual atonement, is that by Christ's death, he died for so few. It's, it's so little, it's so small. But look what the scriptures say. Christ, Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for many. I came as a ransom for many. And here we say, to bear the sins of many. There is a multitude that no man can number of those that Christ has redeemed through his blood. There is much more glory in atonement that is actual and effective and accomplishes salvation and that leaves it unfinished. And that puts the onus on us to be faithful to the covenant. That was part of the old covenant. And that was not part of the new covenant that God says is much better than the old covenant. So this is why we call it a definite atonement. And this is why we say the glory of the atonement is in its effect, in its power. Now, we're going to look at a few objections. You really have to take what was said here this morning 
it was really condensed and take what was said last week. If you haven't watched last week's sermon, you can watch that online. Uh, you really need to get these two together. But what I'm going to do now is look at a number of objections that, that are asked genuinely when we consider this truth of an actual atonement. Because what about the passages that speak about Christ dying for the whole world? They seem directly and obviously contradictory to what you're telling us. So what do we do with those? I'm going to look at four different passages. Um, they're written down for you in your bulletin, or you can flip with me. There's a handout inside your bulletin you can grab, or you can take your Bibles and turn to those texts. The first text we're going to look at is 1 Timothy 4.10. 1 Timothy 4.10. Okay, so normally we stick in one Sunday morning in a cer- certain text of scripture, but we have to cover a few different texts this morning, so a bit more of an unusual sermon. So 1 Timothy 4.10, it says this, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. It says it right here. God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This passage usually quoted, and that's it. This passage obviously, is so it said, refutes what I've just been talking about the last few weeks about a definite and actual atonement where Christ has died for his people and they will, without question, without fail, be saved. This passage says he's the savior of all people. We have to ask a few questions of this text, okay, to understand it. First thing is this, what does it mean that God is the savior of all people? It's not talking about Christ. This passage is, 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 there's no atonement in this context. It's not talking about death. It just says God is the savior of all people. What does it mean that God is the savior for all people? Does it mean that God provided salvation for all people? Is he a potential savior or is he an actual savior of all people? It says that he's the savior of all people. What does that mean? Did Christ die for every single person such that they, uh, so that God can be their savior if they believe? Is that what it means? It says, when it says, especially of those who believe, does it mean that God is a savior, especially of those who believe? Did he do something more for them? And we know that in the general view of the atonement, he didn't. So what does this mean? Does it mean that those who believe are are really saved and those who don't believe, well, God is not their savior? Because it says that God is the savior of all people. And if some accept and some reject and those who reject and who spend eternity in hell, how is God their savior? How is God the savior of all people? And especially the savior of those who believe. The text doesn't make much sense when we consider the atonement. What I want to show you from this text is really the historical interpretation. This text is speaking about God's grace to all of humanity, and especially his grace to believers. When we consider what it means for God to be the Savior, we must consider the historical meaning of Savior. We automatically think, when we think of Savior, we think about cross and sacrifice. 
But during that time when this was written in in Ephesus, the term savior was common. That meant protector or benefactor or patron. In fact, there's subscriptions that we have uncovered from archaeology in Ephesus that say Julius Caesar is the universal savior of human life. That he's the benefactor. He's not saying he died for their sins, but he's their benefactor, their protector, their patron. Second, this meaning of benefactor is confirmed by the immediate context. I want you to read with me or look with me as I read 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10. Okay, reading the context is so helpful as we consider some of these texts. So 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 7, it says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So as we consider this verse in verse number 10, he's explaining, he's giving a reason why this instruction in verse number eight should hold up. And his instruction in verse eight is, bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That is, in those times, you know, training and and athletics and exercise were esteemed. You know, we have the Olympics and all of that that started all the way back then. And so these things were esteemed and they are of good value. God has been gracious to his creation for providing physical exercise and these things that provide us benefit in this life. But for those who are believers... Not only physical training, but training and disciplining yourself to godliness is of value not only in this life, but also in the life to come. Because God is the benefactor, the patron for all people. He's so gracious to all people, but especially to those who believe, especially to those who are going to train themselves in godliness. They are going to receive greater benefit than those who just work physically in their own bodies. Okay, and so we see how we read the whole context of this passage. The scriptures here are not even speaking about the atonement at all, but they're speaking about God being gracious to all people, giving grace to all, but especially to those who believe, especially to those who are going to devote themselves to godliness because they'll receive benefit from God, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. That's our first text. And this, this is not a new interpretation. This is the, if you look at commentaries that are, older than our, our century. Uh, this is the common understanding of this particular passage before there was a, a fight over this text, okay? First uh, Timothy 2, 3 and 6 is the next text I want to consider. First Timothy 2, 3 to 6. I'm just going to read these verses out first. First Timothy 2, 3 to 6. As we consider the extent of Christ's atonement, It says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. So here he's talking about the atonement. He's talking about Christ giving himself. He's talking about Christ giving himself as a ransom for all. Okay, God desires all people to be saved. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. It seems very clear. He's talking about every single person 
whoever was and who exists now and whoever will be, right? So it's all people he mentions twice in verse 4 and again in verse 6. Now he mentions all people earlier in verse 2 and also in verse 1. And so I want to read verses 1 and 2 again to help the context. So 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2, it says this. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then he continues. So who are the all people that he refers to in verse number one? Is it every person who's ever lived, every person who's living now, and every person who ever will live? We know it's not the context. It would be good to pray for every single person on the planet, but that's not what this passage is saying. He says, pray for all people. And what I mean by that is don't neglect to pray for your rulers and your kings. You know, the very people who are trying to kill you right now, pray for them. And what exactly? That they would be saved because if they're saved, we can live a peaceful and quiet life and the gospel can go forth. Okay, so pray for those rulers and leaders that are over you. Why? Why should we pray for them? He continues. Because Christ, there's one mediator between God and man. It's not like there's a separate savior for them. It's not like they're untouchable. There's one mediator between God and man. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a slave. There's one savior and it's Jesus Christ. There is one mediator who has given his life to ransom all people. That is, it doesn't matter if you're a king. It doesn't matter if you're a slave. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Greek. It doesn't matter. There's one mediator for God and all of mankind. And so don't neglect to pray for them. Don't neglect to pray for them. So this passage is not saying that Jesus died for every single person. This passage is being used to support that Jesus died for all without distinction. That is whether it's Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, king, servant. Jesus is the one savior. And so we pray for their salvation. So again, reading the context and understanding this passage is about praying for kings and for rulers in authority. And then he talks about how Christ himself has given himself for men and women like these. And we saw that in Revelation 5, 9, Christ died to redeem a people out of this world from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so don't neglect to pray for those people who are in positions of power or all around the earth. Okay? Another text I want to look at. John three sixteen. John three sixteen. John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Okay, I'm going to stop there. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Clearly says here that God loved the world, not just a few out of the world. Okay? He loved the world and he gave his only Son to die on the cross. One teacher today, a prominent theologian, you know, many... Pastors in seminary read his theology, and he says this. He says, There seems to be a contradiction between the scriptural indications of God's love for the world, for all persons, and the belief that Christ did not die for all of them. Okay, that's the tension. 
Let me read that again. He says, there seems to be a contradiction between the, the scriptural indication of God's love for the world, for all persons, and the belief that Christ did not die for them. Okay? Because we read this text, and immediately we think world, we think all persons. For God so loved the world. That is, for God, that God loved every single individual. And God's love is demonstrated by giving his son for everyone. That is, God's love is demonstrated in the fact that he loves everyone. Okay, so it's the extent of God's love that is so glorious, that is so amazing. Okay, that, that he would love something so big as humanity, as so many as the billions of people that are on this earth. And, and the billions that have come before and the billions that, according to God's will, will come after. So how does this verse fit in with its context? That's what we must ask. How does this verse fit in with its context? Okay, let's read verse 16 and continue. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish of eternal life. And then verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, immediately in verse 17, if we take the world meaning all people and we read that definition into verse 17, it doesn't make any sense. Because it says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the all people. It doesn't make any sense. He sent his son into the world, he says, did not do it to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What is he talking about? Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people. So here you have a, have a distinction between the world and people. So light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That is people loved the world and the darkness of the world. So here, clear distinction between the world that he's talking about and the people that he's talking about. So what is this passage saying then? This passage is not saying that Christ loved or God loved something so big as the world, but that God demonstrated his love in that he would love something so bad as the world, so corrupt, so evil, so vile, that he would send his son down to redeem it through his death, and that all those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what this verse is meaning. That God has shown his love and his mercy and grace by loving something so bad, so vile, so wretched as the world. So this verse is not talking about the extent of Christ's atonement. It's talking here how this world, this moral order, this fallen creation, which stands in rebellion to God, God redeemed it through his son, Jesus Christ. And we recognize from this passage, not everyone is going to be saved. Not everyone is going to be put under that precious blood of Christ and be saved. Some will be condemned. And we recognize this world will be saved because we have the promise of a new heavens and new earth and Christ is going to redeem it. And it's going to be accomplished through his blood. And so this passage is talking about how God would love something. Not as big as the world, not as so many that are in the world, but that he would love something as bad as the world and that he would redeem it. Now I want to go back to that assertion 
that says this. There seems to be a contradiction between the scriptural indications of God's love for the world, for all persons, and the belief that Christ did not die for all of them. I want you to consider John 17. You don't need to turn there because I'm not going to read too much of John 17. But consider John 17. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. We call this prayer in the garden his high priestly prayer. Acting as priest, about to go offer his blood in atonement. And what does Jesus' heart, what did Jesus say? He prayed these words in John 17. He said, I have manifested your name, speaking to God, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Was Jesus unloving in praying this? This would seem to fit in his accusation that there seems to be a contradiction between the scriptural indication of God's love for the world and the belief that Christ did not die for all of them. Christ said, I am not praying for them. I am praying for those whom you've given me out of the world. And he is about to go to the cross to shed his blood for their sins as high priest. Was it unloving for God in the Old Testament to offer a sacrifice for his covenant people and not for the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Girgashites? Was it unloving for God to have a definite, particular atonement in the Old Testament for his people? Was it unloving of him? In an effort to try and defend and exonerate the love of God, we end up emptying the cross of its power. And that's what we do. We don't need to defend God's love to try to make the scope of his redemption include every single individual because we end up emptying the cross of its power to save. And that doesn't also, it doesn't help people with their responsibility. All are responsible to come to God in repentance and faith because it's been commanded of them, because they are created by God. They are accountable before him. And so we're all responsible. We're all accountable. Now, there seems to me, rather than a contradiction to me, the scriptural indication of God's love for the world and the belief that Christ did not die for all of them, to me there seems to be a contradiction between the scriptural indications of God's love and the belief that God's love is powerless to save unless a person gives him permission. To me that seems contrary to scripture. 1 John 2.2 2 is the last passage we're going to look at. 1 John 2.2, 2, and this is probably the biggest one. First John two two. It says in first John two two, he speaking about Christ, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay? Certainly talking about his death. Certainly talking about the atonement. It says here that Christ is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so again, it would seem to contradict what I'm teaching here this morning, at least at first glance. But what does this passage mean? Typically, it's understood to be this way. Jesus died for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of every person in the world. Okay? Okay? And you can see how this, you can get that from this text. 
But that's not what this text says. This text says not that Jesus died for our sins and died for the sins of the whole world, but it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So any good Bible interpreter will look up these words. And what do they mean? What does propitiation mean? It comes from the Greek word halasmos, which means to propitiate, which has the idea of removing wrath or satisfying God's wrath, such that God is no longer wrathful against those whom have, who has his wrath has been propitiated. He's no longer wrathful. And not only that, but it speaks of expiation. That is, that someone's guilt has been removed. So this word here, halasmos, talks about how God has been satisfied in his wrath and how guilt of a sinner has been removed, expiated. That's what propitiation here is talking about. So this is like Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now we have a problem. If Jesus has propitiated the sins for the sins of the whole world, for every single individual, then how can anyone go to hell? How, how can anyone be condemned? Because God's wrath has been satisfied. It's been propitiated. Their guilt has been removed. It's expiated. Christ has done it. He's accomplished it. And we know that universal, this idea that everyone goes to heaven is simply not true. The scriptures over and over again talk about hell and judgment and how many will wind up there because of their sin. And so how do we reconcile this verse? Well, we have two options, two options here. The first option is this. We can interpret or qualify propitiation to mean a potential propitiation. That is, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. That is, for anyone in the world who wants Christ to be their Savior, who wants their sins forgiven, has their sins propitiated for, potentially. And when they come, it's made actual. Okay, so everyone has their sins expiated, potentially, hypothetically, and they can make it actual if they would repent and believe the gospel. God's wrath has been satisfied, potentially. And if they come to Christ, then God's wrath would actually be satisfied. That's one thing we can do. We can, we can try to read here potential or provisional propitiation. The second option that we have is not to tamper with what we mean by propitiation. Is to leave it as it is. It's not to try to make it potential it, or to make the atonement of Christ ineffective. Brother, our second option is to look at this world word world and how it's understood in the first century context. Okay, we're not a bunch of funny games here. He says here, um, he is the propitiation for our sins, that is the believers that he's writing to, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a slave, free, king, queen, servant, slave, Christ is your propitiation. One mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, okay? The world, speaking of all without distinction. Now, this is a common understanding in their time, and they would understand it this way. And I want to read to you a text from John 11, okay? John 11, written by the same human author, inspired by the same Holy Spirit. John 11, I'm going to read to you verses 48 to 53, because we have a parallel here, a parallel in John 11, 48 to 53. In this passage, we have 
the Pharisees discussing what to do with this troublemaker, Jesus. And this is what they say. John 11, starting in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That is, we need to knock off Jesus so our nation doesn't get destroyed by the Romans. Okay, that's what we're going to do. And this is John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as commentary to that. He says this, he did not say this of his own accord, talking about Caiaphas, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Exact same language. Jesus is not going to die for the nation only, not just for Jews only, but Jesus in his death, he's going to gather together the children of God who are scattered abroad. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every social class, gender, Christ is going to achieve their redemption through his death. Parallel passage, same author, as we understand his meaning in 1 John 2.2. Same is true for John 1.29. John 1.29 says this. John the Baptist sees Jesus. says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So people say, well, there he Universal atonement. He's died for every single person. But we forget that word takes away. What does that word takes away mean? It means that he's taken away sin. Sin is no longer there. It's been removed. It's expunged. God's wrath has been propitiated. Our guilt has been expiated. We have been redeemed. We have been ransomed. Christ has taken away sin. Why, oh why, are we more comfortable in qualifying the word word of God and qualifying the work of Christ to take propitiation to mean something that it doesn't actually mean and to make it a potential, a provisional propitiation. Why do we take this word takes away to, to make it bear something that it doesn't actually mean and say it's provisional taking away? It's, it's, it will become actual if man adds something to it. May it never be. This is the work of Christ. He accomplished propitiation. He accomplished the taking away of sin. He accomplished the new covenant in his blood. His atonement was glorious because it was effective. And so before you look at these passages and conclude it's talking about every single individual, make sure you understand what it means to take away sin, what it means to propitiate sin, and wrestle with this before you accept a qualification a, 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 a lessening of the work of Christ. Those are the four texts I wanted to look at that are common texts that object to this teaching of a definite atonement. Now, as we look at those texts that are, that are leveled as objections, we can sometimes lose focus of, of the positive elements because I don't come up here to teach you what the Bible doesn't say. I want to teach you what it does say, Okay. And so it's not also meant to be information that's just going to tickle our mind and be an academic exercise. We saw from Revelation 5 last week that this truth of a definite atonement drives us to worship. It drives us to worship. And as we close here this morning, I want to show you this truth drives us also to comfort and to joy and to assurance. Okay. And with that, turn back to Romans 8, the text that Andrew read. We're just going to close 
with a small point from that text in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read those same verses again. Romans 8, 31 to 39. They're such glorious verses. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Glorious text. Glorious text. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing inside us, nothing from outside us can separate us from God's love. Twice in this passage, it it explains why, as it relates to Christ's atonement. Okay? It tells us, if you look in verse 34, who is to condemn? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How do we know that God's love will never fail? Because Christ has been dead and risen for us, and he is now interceding for us. And so we have confidence in the work of Christ. That's going to be effective. And not only that, but look with me at verse 32. He mentions the atonement again in verse 32. How can we be so confident in God's love for us? He says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Who's he talking about there? Us all. He continues, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's the argument he's using there? There's an argument he's, he's trying to convey here. He's trying to convey God's impeachable love, impeccable love towards us. And what's his argument? If God has loved us so much that he's given his son to die for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is, if God has given his son to die in your place, how will he not give you the whole rest of the promises that he's given to us? How will we not have the promise of a new covenant and the promise of new heavens and new earth, the promise of being with him forever and having our tears wiped away, our sins forgiven, new bodies restored. All those promises are yes and for sure because God has sent his son to die for us. That is a powerful atonement. This verse makes no sense with a general atonement. It makes no sense. This argument makes no sense. If Jesus has given himself for every single person on this planet, The second line, how will he not graciously give us all things? Doesn't make any sense. Because what are we clinging to? 
This passage, we're clinging to God's love that he would send his son to die in our place. And if Christ has died for us, we have God's guarantee that every other promise will be coming. Because that's God's love that he's demonstrated to us. This passage only makes sense if Christ is effective to save his new covenant people. And if his death guarantees the promises of all salvation, it secures eternal redemption like we saw in Hebrews. So this text, we saw in Revelation 5, this truth drives us to worship. And this text, this truth drives us to comfort, to have assurance that if God would send his son to die for us, then all these other problems, nothing can separate us from God's love if he's gone that far because all the rest is lesser. He's already done the greater thing to give his own son to die on a cross. He's done what was most difficult, what was most great. And so the rest of it, we can be guaranteed it's coming. A few questions as we close. Question some of you might be asking, how can I know that Christ has died to powerfully save me? How do I know that Christ's death was for me? God calls us all. In fact, he commands us all to repent and believe the gospel. There has never been anyone who's come to Christ and Christ has said no. There has never been anyone who sought the Lord with a genuine heart whom God has said no. When we come to Christ for forgiveness, we come realizing he is a powerful savior. Not an impotent one. He is powerful savior. And we come to Christ. Why? Because we recognize that we're sinners. Okay, if you're here this morning and you're not a sinner, you have no need for Christ. You have no need for him because you're already fine. But you will get a rude awakening when you meet your maker on judgment day. Okay? Because the truth of the matter is, all of us are going to die. And it's going to happen sooner than we think. You know, think about it. I'm, I'm 37 years old. Where'd the time go? 37 years already. I'm almost halfway down my life. I, who knows? I might even have until today or until tomorrow. I don't know. But the, the point is, in a few generations, I'll be gone and forgotten. Your life is so very short. And we're all going to stand before God, our maker, in judgment. And so the scriptures, when we consider that truth, when we consider our sin and our need for forgiveness and our need for reconciliation with our maker, we recognize that Christ is the only way to accomplish that. We recognize that his death was powerful and effective and all those who come to him will be saved. That's why scriptures call everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so for those who worry and say, well, did God choose me or did Christ die for me? Don't use that as an excuse to stay in your rebellion. So often that's an excuse to stay in your rebellion. That's never a biblical excuse. You know Christ. You know his character. You know what he says. All you who are thirsty, come and drink from the water of life. All you who desire forgiveness, come to Christ to be forgiven. He's a powerful Savior. And all who come, recognize that Christ is powerful to save. So you have to ask yourself, has God convinced you of your need for Christ? If he has, then you need to come to him. You need to pray. You know, just don't stop praying. Ask for that new birth. Ask for that new heart. Ask for forgiveness of sins. Plead with him. 
don't neglect such a great salvation as we've been talking about the last few weeks. Perhaps you're here this morning because you're struggling with assurance of your salvation. And you have to ask yourself, as we consider this truth, does your confidence go up or down depending on what you do? Does it rest in yourself? What you've done? How much you believe? How much you've repented? Or is your confidence in the finished work of Christ? And this truth, as you see in Romans 8, is the great ground for Paul's assurance of God's love, Christ's death. And that needs to be our assurance as Christians, as believers. So let us be comforted. Let us glory in this work of Christ and his accomplishment of salvation, who's redeemed through his death, has redeemed a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And to this, he is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. So let's worship him. Let's pray.